To episode 129 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we have not one, but two reviews of big new movies as we weigh on Netflix's relationship drama, Malcolm and Marie, as well as the historical biopic, Judas and the Black Messiah, now in theaters and on HBO Max. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well. You said relationship drama, and I like sparked up there because I guess Malcolm and Marie is a relationship drama, but I just thought about the relationship between its director and movie critics. That's the real drama of it all. Uh, but no, yeah, I'm, I, I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. We're recording on Valentine's Day. It's been a pretty good day. Rewatched Palm Springs from last year. Fantastic movie. Uh, one, just because it's really funny, but two, it's also appropriate, I suppose, for the day because it does have that rom com element to it. And yeah, overall, doing well. You know, nothing to complain about. For the first time, I think, in my life, I have President's Day off tomorrow. So that's wild. I've, I didn't even know that was the thing that people had off. Uh, but apparently it is. And I've been missing out on it for years. Uh, but I have tomorrow off. So that's fun. Yeah, I certainly do not. Um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I wouldn't no, expect it to. It's been a good Valentine's Day. I uh, was telling you that I just started watching Interstellar before we got on here. I've got like about halfway through it. Um, I was trying to decide between that and some more traditional um, you know, romantic fair, like Before Sunrise and About Time, which are, you know, some of my favorites as well. But um, I was like, well, this movie's about love. Um, I mean, you know, you, you, you honestly won't find a movie that is more about like love at its essence than this movie. So um, yeah. I, I'm able to justify it. Not that I need to again. So yeah. um, look, yeah, you should have just binged normal people base. again, though. That's where you that's where you were wrong. And my emotions couldn't take that. Um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> no, I'm feeling in a pretty good spirits on Valentine's Day. I wouldn't want to do that to myself. Um, but yeah. You didn't but watch Scott, the, the Zack Snyder's Justice League trailer tonight that dropped? No. I, I mean, I know enough to know that apparently it starts out with the Joker saying we live in a society. But um, I that's that's it. That is as much as I intend to know about this trailer. and this. It film. has Batman um, and I, Superman in it, too, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, and you know, if if you were coming to something like it, Scott, in the hopes that you were going to have a Snyder Cut review for you someday, unless Scott and Jay want to get together and do it, it will not be happening because no, that's I'm a good not, idea. Not, Maybe uh, we should do that. I'm Just not going to dignify this slapdash contraption of a movie um, with by reviewing it here on the podcast. Um, but anyway, enough about that. Um, let's talk about another movie again, like you said, that has a complicated relationship with its audience and critics. Uh, our first movie today is the controversial Malcolm and Marie, the latest project from Assassination Nation and Euphoria director Sam Levinson. Shot during quarantine, Malcolm and Marie is a bracing two-character piece about a couple's ruminations on an important night in both of their lives. John David Washington is Malcolm, a filmmaker buzzing from the premiere of his new movie about a female drug addict going through recovery. His girlfriend, Marie, played by Zendaya, believes that she is the basis for Malcolm's film and is wrestling with the ramifications of having her very real trauma depicted on screen. While Malcolm resists Marie's inclinations, he is also preoccupied with the analysis of his film that he is predicting film critics will make. 
Over the course of an evening, these story threads and others develop as Malcolm and Marie's conversations go from spirited to angry to passionate to self-reflective in the drop of a hat. Scott, Malcolm and Marie has garnered negative press for its attacks on film criticism, as well as Levinson's lens as a white man telling black stories. Does the controversy overshadow Levinson's film, or does the film provoke more complex thoughts than these critics might suggest? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Scott. And honestly, even though it it bums me out that I think this is the answer to this question, but I do think the controversy overshadows the the thoughts or the themes or what Levinson maybe you know, or at least his better side wants people to like engage with and think about because, you know, you, you get to the point just to jump straight to the, you know, cut the, ch- you know, cut to the chase. Like you get to that point in the movie and <laughs> after that, you can't think about anything except the fact that he is just absolutely, you know, taking to task this critic who, you know, panned his first movie. And it, it's just like, I don't know, I, I found it so distracting. Yeah, I mean, and you say, you say we get to that point in the movie, and I know what you're referring to, but honestly, we get to it right at the beginning of the movie too. Like yeah, the very first one of the very first things out of his mouth is talking about you know the the chick from the LA, white critic from IndieWire, the yeah, white the white lady from LA Times. Yeah, yeah, which no. is Katie Walsh, of course. Yeah, so it it really is like the specter that's that's hanging over the movie, and I'll get to my I guess my my broader thoughts on the movie in a second, but like I really do think that it overshadows the whole film especially and i think it's hard for someone like you know people like us to go into this movie not knowing that this is what the like this is the conversation around this movie but it's like it's impossible to like not be thinking about that the whole time i think and, and that's a that's a real shame uh, at least for me when i was watching this movie i think it's a bummer because i think there are some really interesting ideas that sam levinson is tossing out although not really necessarily you know running to their conclusion uh so to speak but I think that this was just a, a big swing and, frankly, a, a pretty big miss overall. And it's very undercooked. I mean, maybe that's what we get for a movie that was, you know, conceived, written and shot probably in the span of, honestly, like probably a couple months. Like it was probably a really quick turnaround from conception uh, writing and, you know, actual production. And, you know, I listened to a conversation that, that Sam Levinson had with Sean Fennessy on The Big Picture and he was talking about that creative process for this movie. And I, I don't want to say that, you know, a rushed process or a quick process necessarily makes something half-baked, but I think that you can really feel that like thematically and 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 not necessarily production-wise, because I think the production of it's actually pretty impressive, but like thematically, this thing really seems like underdeveloped on the whole, because it has some interesting nuggets in there, but there's no real, again, sort of playing those, a lot, many of those things out to their conclusion. And it, you really do get, at least I did, I really got hung up on this whole notion of mixing something that I think could be really interesting with something that just feels like really lame and boring and like, you know, completely lambasting someone who didn't like your movie. You know, it just feels very, it just feels very lame and and very lazy to be honest. Um, and it's a shame because I think there's some really, some, there's some aspects of this movie that really aren't lame and really aren't lazy um, and, and are actually really quite impressive. But again, I do think that, that they are overshadowed by this, larger specter over the movie. But I wonder if someone doesn't know anything about Malcolm and Marie, it pops up in their Netflix feed, like, oh, it has Zendaya. I'm she's cool. I want to watch something that she's in. Turns it on and, and watches the movie. I wonder if they feel really differently about this film because it may not immediately be apparent, you know, what Sam Levinson is um is kind of doing in the subtext of, of the film. So, you know, I I can't ever have that experience based on just the fact that I'm so clued into the industry and following it and um, you know, in some very minor way, I'm a part of it, I suppose. But overall, um, yeah, it, w- it was a bit of a miss for me. I think that there's some really impressive elements to it. I think Sam Levinson 
just has a really unique style of doing things. And, you know, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't seen Assassination Nation, but I mean, Euphoria is like the the peak or the like the pinnacle of what I think he can do with the type of style style of filmmaking that he's doing. But you still get parts of that, I think, in Malcolm and Marie with the cinematography, with the score, with like the performances, the nuanced performance from Zendaya. I mean, like they have a real, imp a really impressive, like, I don't know, creative partnership and, you know, what he, what he is able to get out of her as an actress. Um, or maybe that's just how good she is by herself. I, I don't know, I suppose. But overall, it's it, it's a bit mixed for me. I think there's some parts of it that I found really impressive and some parts of it that I, you know, really turned me off. But overall, I, I guess to wrap up my general thoughts, I just found this movie like super exhausting too. I think one of the problems is that it's just like, it's just too long for like the stuff. And it, it's not that it's not paced well because it does give you breaks in between. But like knowing that halfway through how exhausted I am after he goes on his... 10 minute monologue rant about like the particular one that he really goes in on, you know, the LA times film critic, Katie Walsh uh, on after that, like knowing the fact that th that's like, that was going to repeat itself for another hour. I just found like super exhausting and overwhelming on the whole. And I wonder if this might've benefited from being about half an hour shorter and a little bit more refined and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that goes back to my thought about whether or not, you know, this was fully, fully baked and, and ref as refined as it might've needed to be to really land in a way that, you know, felt, um, felt good. Like something that, you know, it's fine for a movie to be exhausting, but you know, when you're halfway through it and you're like, Jesus Christ, I don't know if I can like make it through another hour of this. Um, that's not a good sign. Yeah. I mean, and for those who may not know, like the complete backstory, right. Katie Walsh, LA times film critic, you know, that we're talking about here and that Sam Levinson is clearly talking about in the movie, um, gave a very negative review to assassination nation, which was Levinson's first movie. Um, and so that is, you know, what people are ostensibly pointing to as, um, the reason he has decided to target her specifically, um, in this movie, even though she was far from the only one who panned Assassination Nation. The movie had very mixed reviews. I personally, uh, liked it to some degree. Like this movie, it is a big swing. Um, yeah. but I think it is a lot more entertaining to watch than this movie is. I, I think exhausting is a good word. I think I was like quite bored, honestly, in a, in a couple portions of the movie when these big inflammatory moments are not happening, right? Like, I think there's problematic things about what he's doing in these big inflammatory moments, but they're also, but maybe, you know, by the nature of that, the, the most interesting parts of the movie, because I think yeah. that's where we're really getting into some big ideas about, um, you know, the way that white film critics talk about, quote unquote, black films. Um, and sort of what the what the aim of black filmmakers should be when when making film. I mean, almost similar sort of to some of the conversations that go on in One Night in Miami between Sam Cooke and uh, and Malcolm X about you know should you be making political? I mean, do you have do you have a uh, a duty as a black artist to make a film that advances the cause of black people in the country? Um, or do you not? Or simply by making a film as a black person, is that an act of rebellion? Is that a political act? Just making a film, whether or not it is about the black experience or not. Um, I think all of these questions are kind of coming up in Malcolm's rant. I personally don't have a problem with Sam Levinson as a white artist. I mean, I know some people have, you know, have have raised some ire about Sam Levinson as a white artist, you know, um, doing this. But, you know. He's obviously working with black actors. Um, I, I imagine you that. You have a creative uh, voice in the movie. Yes, exactly. Um, and as long as you can 
write about this with sensitivity and intelligence, like then I think it's it's perfectly fine um, for a white artist to be exploring these types of things. Um, you know, if he is entertaining those perspectives, which he clearly is, again with the black actors here. But, um, but, but yeah. I, so I mean, it, it's it's a complicated thing because I do think that those are the moments where the movie really comes alive, or the performances come alive, or the script comes alive. Um, but they also, you know, have have some problematic elements to them. You know, mainly being his 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 uh, decision to call out Katie Walsh. Um, but we can talk about that a little bit later on since we're still in general, the general section. I mean, I think that, um, the performances are strong here. Um, as you might expect from these two actors who are, you know, really up and coming, I mean, they're movie stars. Let's, let's be honest. After this, there's really no if, ands, or buts about it. These are, these are two movie stars. John David Washington, of course, was just in Blockbuster with Tenet last year. Uh, Zendaya is in Euphoria again, which has, um, a pretty big following and, you know, is, is generating buzz recently for its two sort of standalone episodes that Sam Levinson has just done. Um, and, uh, so, you know, the, their movie star energy is able to, you know, elevate this movie to some level, even though I don't really like their characters, right? Like I, I don't like these people. And I, and I think that's where some of the exhausting element of it comes in is that, you know, at least if it's like like before midnight, for example, right, it, which is like, you know, an hour of that movie probably is just Jesse and Celine going at each other. But you liked the characters of Jesse and Celine, right? So even though it, it's painful to watch them argue, like there's still something, you know, driving you in the along with the movie because you want them to reconcile. You want them to come to some sort of um, understanding and resolution to their conflict. You know, the, the over, overwhelming comment that I've seen from people on this is just these people should have just gone to bed. Right. Malcolm and Marie should have just gone to bed. And that's kind of how I felt as well. Right. Like I just wanted them to be quiet at a certain point because I don't enjoy, um, you know, watching them argue because I didn't really like the characters. And so there there wasn't that like driving force of like wanting them to to get back together. And of course, before midnight has the advantage of having two movies that come before it as well. But um yeah, I, I, so that, I think that is that is part of the, the issue here, um, as well as um, you know the, some of the more problematic elements. I just don't think that it's fun to watch these people that much re really ar argue that much, um, and that the the themes outside of what they're exploring in these couple of rants that that Malcolm has are not just don't captivate like the ideas about film criticism and race and all of that do. Like uh, the stuff about Zendaya's history as an addict, her character's history as an addict, and, um, you know, whether it's her being portrayed in the movie or not. I mean, there's something there, but they just don't really go that far down that road, I don't think. Yeah, and, and I think that's what I'm talking about when I was talking about some things feeling half-baked, because I think there's there's some really interesting juxtaposition involved with, all right, here's the lens that we should, and here are some questions we should think about you know, for regarding film criticism and how we think about film criticism and how we take a lens to analyzing the you know creative outlets of filmmakers in general but maybe also specifically black filmmakers and i think that it tries to do something similar with thinking about okay that's the critics looking at at films and then here's actually like within films directors you know exploiting the experiences and lives of others to make their films so it feels like there's like an interesting juxtaposition that could have been going on there but i totally agree that <laughs> it's somewhere along the way it feels undercooked or just you know just completely left behind i don't know 
Yeah, um, but you know, before we get into that, Scott, let's let's talk about those performances. Yeah, I sure. just mentioned them: John David Washington and Zendaya. They are the only two performances in the movie. This is a two-character piece. Um, we've been seeing quite a few of these recently. Um, you know, some stage play adaptations like Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, which I mentioned, and then you know, this movie, which isn't a stage adaptation, but sort of because of COVID, right? COVID sort of necessitated making um, something a bit smaller, more intimate with you know, less people, of course. Um, and that, you know, that's the reason for that. The performances uh, live up to the, you know, the billing of these actors, you know, obviously now, like I was saying, when you see these actors' names, you expect high high level performances, high quality movie star charisma. Um, and do you get that with these two actors? Uh, yeah, I think you do, honestly. I, I really do. I know some people, I, I shouldn't say some people. I, I think that the, the critics, at least, seem to be, sh- you know, heaping a little bit more praise on Zendaya's performance. And I can see that. I think that there's a little bit more nuance from start to finish from her. There's both the loud moments where she's acting with a capital A, but then there's the quieter moments too, right? Where she is doing a lot of sort of like nonverbal acting as well. Something which I think John David Washington also does to an extent, but I think is really pronounced in her performance. And she just has, I think, a little bit more to work with. And frankly, is a little bit, you know, I don't know. She's less dislikable <laughs> than I think Malcolm is yeah. uh, John David Washington's character in the grand scheme of things. I think that goes a long way for her in terms of how far she, she can go with this performance. But to start with John David Washington, who I think is the one who really makes an impression from the start. I mean, the openings, you know, that sort of the opening monologue that he goes through where he's, I, I forget what song he's singing, but he's like singing a song in there and he's like being I mean, incredibly physical performance from him. You can tell how he was in like a huge, you know, large budget Chris Nolan action movie, like just last year, right. With the way yeah, he's I mean, he, jump- and he was a college football player. Ex- exactly. That's actually, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, he's jumping up on like desks and like, you know, really vibing with what's going on. And this is of course, right when they start the movie, when they're getting back from the movie premiere and he's really, you know, hyped about the fact that his movie debuted. Right. Uh, and I think that it really sets a strong, uh, for, it really gives a strong first impression for what this performance is is capable of. And I think the physicality that you see in that opening scene really plays through from start to finish. Unfortunately, I don't think that physicality is necessarily used as well throughout the rest of the movie. I think in some ways, at some point, it's just now it just becomes a really loud performance and a really over the top performance that I think wears, at least it weared on my nerves a little bit. Like it got on my nerves how loud it was and how over the top it was not that it wasn't believable just that i mean at some point i just got really tired of listening to it i think and but then like i was saying with zendaya's performance on the other hand i think that overall she gives you a little bit more of both again the loud moments and the quiet moments it feels a little more balanced it feels a little bit more measured and she's doing a lot i really think she is doing a lot when she's getting you know bombarded by malcolm's rants that you know zendaya is doing a lot with her you know nonverbal acting her ways of sort of playing off of of John David Washington, I think is a lot more nuanced and a lot more effective than the way John David Washington plays off of her. I think that's by design. Again, I think that's really how kind of the characters are set up. And, you know, not not to say that Malcolm's a one dimensional figure in the movie, although I think that there's an argument to, to be made there. I think, you know, he he just doesn't have he's not asked to give as much range, I think, as as Zendaya and Marie's character. And so I think there's a lot more to think about, a lot more interesting notes about that Marie character. And so I can understand the performance and the praise going towards this performance. And I probably would single that one out as the 
one that stood out of the two. But I also still think that John David Washington is giving a really strong performance. And unfortunately, just peaks, I'd say, in like the first 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, I mean, look, he has his father's charisma. There's there's no doubt about that. We've said that, you know, with the last few movies he's yep. been in. I, feel I like want him it. to be my friend. <laughs> he seems like a cool <laughs> yeah, guy. And you, know, and, you know, Denzel is no, you know, no stranger to some big sort of rants and, you know, acting and stuff like that. Hey, Malcolm and, you X. Know, Mal- Malcolm X and yeah. Training Day and a bunch of movies. But, um but yeah, so so I, it is just it does reach a point of like almost Nicolas Cage level like yeah uh, exuberance I guess the, <laughs> just the, as much as he just rips into this rant and of course you know it's like it's very sort of articulate flowery language and stuff that Sam Levinson has written too so it it does I mean it does come off as pretentious right and and I'm not saying that the film necessarily is pretentious like I think that. Malcolm is we're not again we're not supposed to like Malcolm and so that is um yeah. you know it, it it makes sense that his character is pretentious. like I think we're supposed to feel that his character is pretentious but yeah that I mean you know it's it's it, it does become obnoxious to listen to after a certain point it's like okay we get it um but yeah Zendaya to your point I think is doing the the, the heavy lifting here in the in like these types of scenes where she's just like sitting watching him right and the expressions and stuff like her you know, she's kind of like bemused at him, but then um, maybe she gets a little sick of it. And, you know, th- th- there's, a, there's you know, more more than one scene like that in the movie where Malcolm is sort of going off and um, it relies on her nonverbal acting a lot. I mean, she does get her big moments as well, but I didn't feel yeah. like there was as much capital A acting coming from her. And I mean, that's, you know, that's the script again. I, I don't necessarily fault John David Washington for just, you know, tearing into it. I'm sure that's how he was directed um, to, yeah, to perform so. the scene. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, I think these actors, as, as obnoxious as it can be at times, it probably would have been worse with worse actors, right? Like with a worse actor than John David Washington in this role. This movie, um, but Remy Malek. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> Great example. Um, with, with Rami Malek get, giving all of these lines, doing this crazy weird thing with his job he does in every single movie where he literally cannot say a single line of dialogue like a normal human being. Um, yeah, that would have been interminable if he had been in this movie. But um, but yeah, I, th- I think they're both really good. They're both going to do better things than this. They both have done better things than this. Um, I, I don't know what else to add except, you know, even in the boring, the, the moments that I felt were boring, there was just enough there in their performances to keep me from like, I don't know, looking at my phone, whatever I would do when I'm bored in a movie. Yeah, um, maybe. So, so yeah, that, you know, that, that, uh, that's about as, as much as I'll say for them, uh, performances are good. The movie doesn't do them enough justice, probably. Um, Scott, how about the supporting cat? No, I'm kidding. Um, you mean the camera work? That's the supporting. Well, cast yeah, that's me. that's what I was gonna say. The real supporting cast here is probably the the uh, the cinematography and the uh, the score. Remind me who does the music here? Um, it's somebody that I should. It's Labyrinth. Know. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It is Labyrinth. Um, 
you know, th- thoughts on the black and white cinematography. Marcel Rev obviously also shot Euphoria, uh, several episodes of Euphoria, and uh, shot Assassination Nation. I mean, I think that for me, the highlight of Assassination Nation, if you've seen it, is this big uh, set piece at a house that has like this long tracking shot um, by Marcel Rev that I think is is really dazzling. But um, but yeah, you know, he has some moments like that in this movie. Um, the score is you know kind of along the jazzy um feel yeah. that we've seen in a few movies here recently i mean it just fit, it fits black and white aesthetic right it fits with movies yeah. it was in passing tank yeah. and stuff like that yeah, yeah. Um, that we've seen recently um so hey, i'm, I'm all tank. for yeah i'm all for a jazzy score i i love jazz especially i think it works really well not just in black and white but i think that it it works really well in movies in general it's one of the reasons why i liked la la land as much as i did i mean that's a great film in general but i was gonna say ryan I, gosling over here about to open up chicken on a stick but yeah exactly yeah what is it? what is this? What is the jazz club called? Sebs? Is that what it is? Yeah, that's what in it's called at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I think that Marcel Rev and Labyrinth, I think they really do a lot to to boost this movie as far as it can go. It's not a long tracking shot, but the opening shot of the film, which I think I mean I don't know if it's actually a clean take for 10 or 15 minutes, but feels that way. And it's not a tracking shot, but it's just from outside the house, sort of panning back and forth across rooms where you have you know, Zendaya's Marie character sort of in the bathroom after they just got home from the movie premiere and John David Washington, again, it's sort of giving this really physical performance of sort of celebrate, like a celebratory note almost to sort of, I should say start the night, but I guess it's really ending in the start of the end of the night, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but I, I was really captured by or captivated by that uh, sort of opening stint or, or opening scene and I think you really get sort of the best of everything in that you get Zendaya and John David Washington and the cinematography and the score sort of all firing on all cylinders in the first 10 or 15 minutes. And I really think that throughout the film, those, you know, I think the cinematography, the shots sort of like the low angle close ups, the jazzy score that, you, you know, we've already been talking about here. I think those things do as much as they can to sort of get you through some of these moments. But unfortunately, and I think this is a consistent theme for everything that I'm saying, I just don't think the movie gets much better after 10 or 15 minutes. Like it, it peaks for me. And as much as you can do with cinematography and score, something which I think, you know, I don't nec- I don't want to compare this too much to this movie, but like as much as cinematography and score can help any movie, you know, specifically Joker, if you think of a movie that had really that I thought had really good cinematography, a really good score, you know, it can only take it so far, right? Like good cinematography, good score is not going to get you to, uh, you know, doesn't doesn't make a great film. Unfortunately, it needs the it needs the rest of, you know, the rest of the pieces of the puzzle. This film just doesn't have it, but I think it is good overall. And it wouldn't surprise me. I was going to say it wouldn't surprise me if Marcel Rev gets like best cinematography nomination at the Oscar. But I don't know. I don't know if it's there. I think this movie is just like too, too hot to handle, maybe. Yeah, he, I, I don't know. Maybe in a technical category, they would go near it. But I think there's some other movies like, you know, Nomadland and Tenet and stuff yeah. like that that are going to be sort of the, the yeah. locks for best cinematography. But um but yeah, no, I, I don't really have anything else to add. I, I've, I've kind of said my piece there that I think Marcel Rev is very talented. I hope that um, he will start getting some work outside of just Sam Levinson projects, right? Because I think he he, he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. It's crazy, it's crazy. Yeah, because like Michael Jalakis is another example, right? Who like he's he worked you know with David Robert Mitchell in two movies where like blew me away. But now he's gone on and he's done. Um, he's worked with Shyamalan, right, on Split and Glass and. Um, there was something else he shot that is I he even old? But, uh, he probably is. I don't know, but um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's time for Marcel Rep to branch out a little bit because he clearly 
is very talented. But um, but yeah, so that's you know the technical aspects of the movie. Scott, let's let's you know talk a little bit about the themes here before we uh, finish up because you know that is sort of the talking point of this movie. Um, with the film criticism thing, I'll just sort of jump in and say that the problem for me, I think, with it is that is that he he calls out Katie Walsh specifically, right? Because listening to it, right, again, Malcolm is not supposed to be a likable character. And when I listen to the, you know, the rant at the beginning in particular, like if you separate out the fact that, you know, it's he calls out the, the white lady from L.A., from the L.A. Times, Katie Walsh, um, you know, it just sounds like a super sanctimonious, you know, rant on film criticism from a guy who we aren't supposed to like or take seriously. And, and I, you know, it, it kind of makes me think, well, what were people getting all bent out of shape about? about this. I mean, let, let, let's be real here. Film critics, film critics can be a sensitive bunch um, when it comes to stuff like this. Um, sure. I don't know if you've seen this whole thing that's going on with Promising Young Woman and Carrie Mulligan. Um, yeah, stuff, I but it's, I did it's a little that. interesting as well. But anyway, I, I actually kind of side more with the film critics on that one. As far as this movie, I kind of think the issue is, is that, right, is that he calls out Katie Walsh. And so it, instead of us focusing on the actual genuine issues and ideas that are found within these rants, you know, you just can't get past the fact that, oh, it just sounds like this is he's using this character for sour grapes to go after um, this critic who pissed him off with a review of his first movie. And, you know, again, I've, I've said that I don't think the race thing is super problematic because I don't think there's anything like that tone deaf in the movie. Um, but I will say it, it does feel like he's using like a black actor in a way and a, a black, you know, black performer, black character to rail after a white critic in ways that probably a black performer, black character can get away with more than a, a white performer or character could, could potentially get away with. Um, and so that, that is a little bit troublesome, but, but anyway, I, I think that he just would have been better served right of, of putting his ego aside and, and, and just, you know, using a generic critic if he's going to go after someone um, and and not clearly, clearly targeting Katie Walsh. Like, I, I don't think there's really any um, confusion about it. Um, I, I think it, it's obviously her. And even if even if we aren't meant to like Malcolm and, um, you know, and, and identify with him necessarily again, number one, he uses these rants as vehicles for interesting ideas, which I think we are supposed to think about. And number two, the second ran in particular, right? It does feel like he is he is having his cake and eating it too, right? Even if we're not supposed to be, you know, again, liking Malcolm or necessarily going with everything he's saying, you know, it's this, again, super expressive, loud, vigorous rant with all, all you know, he's clearly showing off with his writing. Um, it's clear, again, that he wants us to also be enjoying and, be entertained by the the attack on film critics um yeah too right. I, I, I i don't think that you can have it both ways um so for me right again i think the problem is he calls out katie walsh specifically otherwise if you separate that out of it i don't have a problem with what he's doing I mean, film critics are open to be cr criticized in movies as much as anyone else is um i just think that the way he goes about it is all wrong in this movie yeah, look, I completely agree. I think that it, it's it's so in some ways, like it's almost more frustrating than if it just didn't have anything to say at all, if that makes sense. 
it's like this notion of having something interesting to say about film criticism, right? This idea of like, all right, what lens should we really be looking at, you know, any sort of creative art, right? But like particularly black filmmakers and what they're doing. And, you know, is it okay or is it insincere or, or whatever it is, right? That um, critics are doing and, and sort of reflecting on that, analyzing that. But then sort of just like overriding all of that by like using this really interest, like using this voice of Malcolm and Marie for that matter, but particularly Malcolm in this case, to then say those words and then right after just completely burn this like critic that, you know, it's like completely irrelevant to what they're talking about in the movie. Like sure, like sure that relevant insofar as this person is a critic and critiques film and critiques black, you know, black filmmakers, but not in a way because like when you add the context and you can't like you can't take this, you can't look at this film in a vacuum, right? Like when you know the context and when you know who this person is, it well, comes off as really sleazy and so, like right, like it, it comes off as really cheap really lazy really sleazy and and it, to me it does come off as like fairly problematic that you are essentially you know wrapping up this package of here's some really interesting themes to digest about Chris criticism and also when you're thinking about that this lady like is an idiot and doesn't know what she's talking about about movies and it feels really wrong and it feels dirty to be doing that and then also couching all of that in the fact that like oh this character can say this because they are black and because they have a right to be able to critique these people because they are black and then it, here's also my like white person problem as well thrown in with it and it just feels really weird to have done that right yeah no, no that's it exactly right because he's talking about race i mean race is like the thrust of what he's saying and yeah. you know obviously katie walsh's crit critical review of assassination nation doesn't have anything to do with race i mean that that film is not really about race. It's made by a white filmmaker. It doesn't really. It's not related to any of the concerns that that um, you know that he's that Malcolm is bringing up. Yeah. In this movie, um, and so it, yeah, it feels it just feels like irrelevant again, and just a way you know again using this character and performer to attack a white critic in a way that he wouldn't be able to get away with otherwise. And it's so, and, and what's really disappointing about it is that, like, understanding, learning a little bit about the creative process for this movie in that interview that I was referring to earlier with Sean Finnessy at the Big Picture of the Ringer is like, it's very clear that Sam Levinson is a director in this case, right? I, I'm assuming this is also true for, you know, Euphoria and probably to an extent, to at least some extent, probably also Assassination Nation, but especially when you have someone like John David Washington and Zendaya on your film, some, and especially with Zendaya having a very close partnership already, like, like they have that sort of creative voice uh, or at least feedback in the process. And he's in some <clears> ways relying on them to give him feedback and be like, all right, this is, is this okay for me to put these words into your mouths? Like me as a white director, is it okay for me to put these words into your, you know, black voice, right? Like, are those things okay? And just like, and you could go into like the power dynamics of like, okay, what, like when do actors feel comfortable pushing back yeah. against a director who's making their movie, right? I think that's a really, important conversation to also have maybe not one that we're going to have on here but like just take set that aside for a moment think all right they gave them feedback so like okay yes to some extent these themes that i think are really important to grapple with and to think about about criticism like those are things that i think that these black actors in this case zendaya john dave washington have thought or have felt or like feel true to them whatever that means and that's another thing that the film talks about is you know what does authentic even mean right but at the very least feels like authentic to them Right. And I think that's super interesting. And then to like, again, like to have this thing tacked on to the end of it almost as sort of like a postscript 
to the thing. Um, it just it just feels so lazy. I don't know. Like it, it feels so unnecessary. It's it's just really it's really off putting. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, and it sours again for me. What is otherwise just kind of an okay film. Um, yeah. Not 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 you know not. It's too exhausting to be a great film. Like not really, excellent, not excellent, obviously, but also not like a complete bomb and without any merits whatsoever. It would have been good. Um, it would have been a good film. Not yeah, great, but, but it, a good ju- film. it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth to where I, even though again I can look at the film and say, well, this is just an average film. I, you know, I enjoyed it less than that. I think because yeah. it has this added element. Uh, anything else you want to add about some of the other themes being explored in the movie, Scott? Again. With Zendaya's character, there's a lot about her sort of, uh, is she being represented in the movie? Um, is is it okay for him to use her addiction um, as the substance of his movie? And, you know, what, what she is going through having to basically watch her trauma relived on screen. Um, and, you know, what, see, seeing other people watch the movie and realize that it is about her. Um, Right. Like, again, I think could potentially be interesting, but um, probably not given the room to breathe that it needed. Yeah. I would say that's a great way to describe it. I think could be interesting is definitely the the way to go down. I think for me, this is like a hard one. I think for your average audience and, and even someone like us, right. To like really take on board and understand and feel like we could, you know, relate to that or, or feel that. And that's because, you know, we're not actors, right? We're like, we're not the inspiration for a movie. And I think that, you know, even though we're not making films ourselves, right? Like we are people who watch movies and then think about them at the very least, right? And we also get the chance to talk about them. So we can kind of relate to like the critical aspect of it. But yeah, it feels like it doesn't get all the way to the finish line with that theme. And one of the things that we sort of just like sort of skirted by is that like the whole premise for the movie is that Malcolm doesn't thank Marie, um, at, you know, yeah. when he's introducing the and movie. And Sam Levinson yes. did not thank his wife. Um, yeah, so it's in, it's inspired by something that yeah, it, it was inspired by something that Sam Levinson himself forgot to do uh, when he was introducing. I forget was it at Sundance, whatever, wherever Assassination Nation um, debuted. Um, anyway, so yeah, that, like the, the it feels like that's the, the that's where like a big chunk of the movie lies. But then when I think back about it, and that's probably true. Like probably half the movie is about that, right? It's like one half is about that, the other half is about this whole. But again, emotion. the more interesting stuff and the stuff that you remember is the other parts. Exactly. And I and I just couldn't like I think I sit back, like I sit down and think about this movie. The stuff that I think about and stuff that I remember, it doesn't have anything to do with that. And that's I don't take that for what it's worth. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how Jennifer Jason Lee felt watching Marriage <laughs> Story, right? Like that seems to be sort of a similar type. Um well, may, maybe you know, Noah Bombach would have to be like, no, I wasn't just married to you and divorced you. I've I've married yeah, and divorced which, many people. <laughs> right, which is what Malcolm basically says in this movie, yeah. right? That, no, there's – and he has this whole scene, which actually is not one of my least favorite scenes and not one of my least favorite scenes. <laughs> what a great way nice to describe negative that. there, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's an okay scene, right, where she's in the bathtub and he's going through like a, these the list of women – Basically, yeah. yeah. And you kind of are wondering, is he just making all of these people up on the spot? Or like, you know, is are these the actual people that, you know, in some way also inspired the movie? And is that worse, right? Like, is it worse from Zendaya's perspective, from Marie's perspective, if there are other women that like her you know, are also played out in this, you know, it had such an effect on him that he felt like he had to go write this movie in which yeah. they, you know, were, were a part 
Uh, or is it better that it is just about her, um, even if it means having to watch her trauma, you know, again, relived on screen and have everyone know that it is about her? Again, I, I mean, it's it's that that is a very interesting question, but I feel it is. like it really is. We're giving the movie way more credit than it probably deserves for any sort of deeper exploration of that. Um, yeah, it doesn't get there. Yeah. Uh, anything but, else you want to add, Scott, before we wrap up here? Well, I was going to say only to that notion. I think that what was what would be better for you know Marie or Zendaya's character in this film is if if they had just gone to sleep, which I know we joked about at the beginning, but like the truth is they should probably have just gone to bed. And eventually they do, thankfully. Um, yeah. But it takes a while to get there. Um, okay, uh, Scott, favorite scene or moment from Malcolm and Marie? Yeah, I think I think I spoiled it earlier on what my favorite scene is going to be, but it's that opening shot. I think you get all the good parts of this movie you know, in one 10 or 15 minute segment. It's not that there aren't any other like good moments throughout the rest of the film, but you get them all in one in the first 10 or 15 minutes. And I, and I do think the movie peaks there, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there's some okay moments of comedy. Weirdly enough. Yeah. In the that movie. Was funny. Like it was pretty funny. Um, what is it that he loses in the house and that he can't find his, his um, wallet? Right. Yeah. His, his storming around looking for his wallet and yelling and stuff like that is, is pretty funny um and yeah. you know clearly played for laughs um, also the stuff about like the whole reading someone's like critique of like the camera work of the movie and he's like that's not even the camera technique that we were using in the film yeah yeah which is obviously just like, uh, th that feels like insincere comedy though because it's just it's kind of being made up it's like being engineered sure he yeah to, they made yeah. up the review i mean maybe it's inspired by a real review who knows i, I mean i'm, I'm very sure welcome. At some point in the history of film criticism, a film critic in their review has referred to the wrong camera technique. Yeah. Um, I think that that is probably, probably it happened. But uh, yeah, you know, again, again it, it has some comedy. Mo I, I kind of wish there was a little bit more levity to to break up some of these scenes. Yeah, because you both. <laughs> it, again, yeah, the, it, it does get exhausting and heavy. Um, Look, I, the truth oh, is, I was ready to turn this movie off like an hour in. I was just like, exhausted by it. I didn't. Yeah, I can't ever. I can't ever see myself going back to it for a long, long time. Um, yeah, you could have ended it at never see myself going back to it. There's, there's too, there's too much, too much good out there. Um, let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give Malcolm and Marie out of ten? Four point five. That's the exact same score that I give it. As a matter of fact, four point five. Um, I like I said before. I, I mean, I think if we're rating the film objectively it might rate a little bit higher for me but i think like you know subjectively the way that it goes after katie walsh and stuff like that just feels cheap and um again ir irrelevant and like a filmmaker taking out a little bit of a personal vendetta which is disappointing to see from someone whose other works i have admired right like again assassination nation i think is an interesting movie if not a, you know complete success um Euphoria, I think, yeah, it is something really special. Um, and then we get this, right? And, I mean, you know, to Sam Levinson's credit, he doesn't, when he fails, like with this movie and Assassination Nation, um, it's in interesting ways, right? Like it's not, it, we're not bored. Well, I mean, you know, I was bored with certain parts of these movies. But again, we, there's a lot to talk about with, with the movie. Like he he's failing in, in interesting ways. Um, so, I, you know, yeah. The, it's an interesting way to describe yeah. it because I think that the way he failed in this movie is like not interesting. It is really boring and is really lazy. But the other stuff that he had going on in this movie was interesting. I can't speak for Assassination Nation, yeah. but that's what I felt about this one. 
it just feels like at this point he needs to surround himself with some other voices, right? Because he is taking on, I mean, he takes on the writing and directing responsibilities uh, for a lot of euphoria and, yeah. you know, obviously did for assassination nation. Um, and so maybe he needs someone to just sort of rein him in a little bit, particularly maybe, maybe, on, maybe if he thanked his wife, his wife would do it for him. <laughs> maybe so. Uh, maybe his father, who is quite an accomplished director in and of himself, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know what, what it is, but uh, I do think that Sam Levinson will, will go on to do better works and I'm Euphoria not out on yeah, I'm not out on him as a creator by by any means, despite some of the more problematic elements of this. It's it's so crazy to think like he has this movie, right? That's like about two hours long, right? And then, you know, in the last two months, he's had two other I mean, essentially like if you put them together, they are a movie. Yeah. Right. Movies. Like yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're short films. I mean, they're about the length of small acts, I guess, <coughs> as small acts movies. But like those things are incredible. And th those things are like therapy sessions so that this movie is like, I don't know if this movie is trying to be a therapy session, but like, it's so weird to see him do it, like es essentially do something tangentially related to what he's doing with Malcolm and Marie and like actually, you know, see what it's like to succeed in doing that. And, you know, if, if you're thinking about watching Malcolm and Marie, honestly, just go watch the two Euphoria specials. I don't even think you need that much context for them. You can yeah. just go watch them blind. The other thing I was going to say, the other joke I was going to make is that as someone who has now worked in family law for a few months, um, I hear enough of couples arguing on a daily basis. I don't need to watch a two-hour movie in which we get nothing but that, basically. So that was another nail in the coffin for me. Uh, anyway, Scott, uh, that'll do it for our review of Malcolm and Marie. After the break, uh, we've got another big new movie. This one out on in theaters and on HBO Max, uh, and that is the historical drama Judas and the Black Messiah. We'll be right back with that review. So stay tuned. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Our second film today is the biographical drama Judas and the Black Messiah. The sophomore feature from writer-director Shaka King, Judas and the Black Messiah is set in 1960 Chicago, where 21-year-old Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is captivating Black audiences as the chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Hampton is also garnering intense scrutiny from law enforcement, who naturally don't react well to Hampton's incendiary and often inciting rhetoric, which encourages resistance to authority, particularly the police. Angling for a promotion, FBI agent Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons, decides to blackmail a young black car thief named Bill O'Neill into joining the Panthers as an FBI informant. Played by Lakeith Stanfield, O'Neill joins at first to save his own skin but soon finds himself drawn in by Hampton's fiery charisma and must grapple between his desire to maintain his own safety and comfort and his passion to bring about the type of social change Hampton advocates for. Scott Judas and the Black Messiah is a late entry into the Oscar race with two big name stars topping its bill and an absorbing true story at its heart. But does this biopic play it safe to attract that award's attention or is it a work as vibrant and radical as the titular Black Messiah? Look, uh, all, all I'll say this is that I think the answer is like much less complicated than the, than the answer to, you know, your question coming out of the primer for our discussion about Malcolm and Marie. And that is that this movie is incredible. Like, this movie is absolutely on fire from start to finish. 
you know, I think that it gives you a lot of different flavors over the course of it. But I think the way that I described it in my letterbox review is that Shaka King, who had directed like one other movie, like really small movie, like six years ago or something like that, seven years ago, um, and has otherwise just done some TV stuff like this guy is like cooking with gas with Judas and the Black Messiah. I mean, he comes in really hot and I know they've been working on this movie. He and I think it's like the Lucas brothers who were like the people who originally uh, like optioned the rights to this film have been working on this since like 2016, like pretty early on. Like this movie has been in the works for a really long time. Um, and it finally got made with Shaka King and he's friends with Brian Coogler and, you know, having it, having the film, help, you know, be EP'd or, or produced or help produced by Brian Coogler will, will get you a long ways. But I don't know, like Daniel Kaluuya, who plays Fred Hampton and Lakeith Stanfield, who plays Bill, Bill O'Neill are just incredible, incredible all caps in this film. I think they're two of the best performances of, I mean, this is a 2021 performance, but for Oscars consideration, you know, it does qualify for, for this year's uh, for the award season this year. They're absolutely incredible. It's, it's amazing to me that these two actors are not more in the awards conversation. I know Daniel Kaluuya, you know, is getting awards hype for his supporting role as Fred Hampton. But I think as incredible as that performance is like top tier, I think it even is the best performance in the movie for me. I think Lakeith Stanfield is such a close second. I think he should be in the conversation as well for what we have going on. And overall, you know, not only are these like, is this film buoyed by these two, you know, God tier level performances from these two young black actors. I think that the story is also just incredibly compelling. And one that even though I may have recognized Fred Hampton's name, mostly because of all the other tangentially related movies we've been seeing over the last year plus, I did not know the story. I didn't know the context for what is going on. And the way that it sort of brings that story to the screen, the way it tells it, the way it sort of like where it starts and where it finishes, how it goes about doing that in almost like a in sometimes like in, in some instances, in some scenes, almost like a genre like way. Uh, it, it just really astounded me. And this is the best thing that I've seen, you know, in the last, you know, since quarantine started, no doubt. Yeah, uh, it's not quite the best thing that I've seen since quarantine started. Um, that's still to come on the podcast. Uh, spoiler alert! But yeah. um, but this is pretty close. Uh, I'm I'm with you, Scott. This movie is so so good, um, and I got to see it in theaters. Um, very fortunately enough, last night, and yeah, it's a great great theatrical experience. I mean, I feel like that about every movie now when I actually get to go to the theater, yeah. just because um, you know it's so rare. But yeah, and I think what's so good about this movie, right, is that it shows that you don't have to like to contrast it with our last movie, you don't have to try so hard to make a good movie, right? You have, all you need is an interesting story and really, really good actors. Um, and that's going to get you a long way, right? Because yeah. Shaka King is not rewriting any sort of rules of filmmaking. He's not, he doesn't have any sort of like huge stylistic things that he's doing here. Like it's, it's a biopic, right? It's a historical drama. Um, but it's imbued with so much vitality and energy. And again, those performances. And I think just, again, the fact that the story is so compelling and so such a part of history that I had no idea about, right? That was my number one reaction coming out of this movie is like, how have I never heard about any of this, right? Like, uh, you know, I've heard a little, I mean, I know a little bit about Fred Hampton. Obviously he is in the trial of the Chicago seven, right? Being played by Kelvin Harrison jr. But, um, 
that's Definitely. a very brief, that's a very brief role. Um, and actually is a little bit off of the timeline of this movie, right? Because they talk about the trial at one point in this movie, but Fred Hampton is still in jail at that point. So I'm not sure which one of them is actually sort of has the timeline down correctly, but um, I kind of think it might be the, the Sorkin. But anyway, um, I think the historical liberties, if, if any that are taken here are, are mild. Well, but they both take historical liberties probably, and more so probably with the trial of the Shogun 7. Well, yeah, certainly with the way that that film ends, but um, but yeah. Anyway, I think that um, this movie, it's it, like it's just, it's a movie, right? Like this is a capital M Hollywood movie. Like it just has that energy from it. Like it has that intangible thing that, like, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, now this this is what a movie looks like. I, I know it sounds sort of like it's overly simplistic, but like that that is how I felt watching this movie. It just well, and it's not, right? and it's not simplistic, right? Because like you're talking about this being like a super conventional, uh, you know, prestige type biopic, but I think it's like so much more than that. Honestly, I think that there's a lot of like genre elements to this. Like this feels like it is a biopic fused with something like The Departed, right? Like it feels like it has this sort of like cat and mouse, you know, like crime genre type film, like shootout. Like it has a shootout scene, like. It, not that these things are like new or innovative to the genre necessarily, but this like doesn't feel like a straight laced biopic to me. Like, and I think that's what almost takes it to the next level. Yeah. I, I kind of disagree on that. I, I do think this is, you know, a biopic biopics have shootouts in them too. But um, I, I think that um, sure. re regardless, it's, it's, a, it's as good a biopic as you will pretty much ever see if we're being quite honest again, because of um, the people just know what they're doing here. Those performances are amazing. Like, both both of these guys are just absolutely electrifying up there. You cannot take your eyes off watching them. Uh, Black Klansman, I think, is the is. I mean, it re reminds me a lot of that movie. Um, you know, the story and um, I, I think is similar, but I think this movie is doing other things that are. I mean, th this movie is more radical, I think, which is interesting, right? Because it is just a biopic. It looks like a word spate, whatever. I think Black Klansman was trying to say something about like, well, the black black activists and the police need to find a way to work it out between them because the the way to change this is from the inside. Um, and I, I don't think that's what is Judas and the Black Messiah is saying at all. I mean, I think people, you know, I think this movie is is sort of advocating for Fred Hampton's revolution to to continue um, because. It's, you know, we're still having the same problems today, but um, yeah, it's, it, I, I, you know, I wish I could say something more profound other than, you know, it's a movie, but like, that is my main reaction after watching this is that I just came out of this just like wired and like, man, I, I it's been a long time since I felt like this um, coming out of, you know, a, a, a movie and yeah. Um, yeah. All, all credit to, to everyone involved here. I think the the story. Um, yeah. I mean, I th it is it is as entertaining a history lesson, right? Like it's Black History Month, um, and I just felt like so gratified after having watched this. Like, wow, I have actually I have legitimately after watching this. Not only was it an extremely uh, captivating film to watch, but I have learned about a very important piece of Black history, yes, but just American history in general that I knew nothing about. Um, and, you know, as sad as that is, right, because it's probably a product of my education that um, we were never sort of taught about this. Um, I also think that, again, it's I'm, I'm gratified that this movie is out there 
to provide that sort of lesson because I think that now people are are going to learn about this from this movie and you know better late than never I say. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you're talking about is like this movie feels like more radical than something like Black Klansman. Who I, was that? Annapurna. I'm forgetting who funded that movie, or I can't. I can't remember the top of my head right now. You would know better than me. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm gonna kick myself when I look it up later. Who who made Black Klansman? But for, forget that for a second. But like this movie is funded and made by Warner Brothers. Like they are pushing a movie, and all credit to them, right? Like they are making a movie that is ostensibly like, you know. The, you know, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI in the 1960s, like targeted black, like dissident black men. And they make a movie. I don't want to say, I mean, yeah, I mean, glorifying is a weird word to use with this, but like they make a movie that paints these socialists, like, like openly admitting to being socialists as like as heroes in this film. And I think that's like, that is like so interesting, I think. And the fact that a major, you know, motion picture, a major Hollywood production is being, you know, produced and it is about, you know, how the FBI targeted socialists um, and assassinated them. Right. But it's it's not a preachy film, right? At all. At all. It really not is just telling the story. Right. And I think the story of it itself has that sort of built in commentary there. Um, again, that speaks to our current moment. Yeah. So, yeah, it is surprising to see. And yeah. it is surprising, you know, that this movie is going to be getting Oscar attention. Yeah. Most likely. I mean, like I, I do think that Daniel Kaluuya has gotten himself into probably a very likely nomination for best supporting actor. Um, yeah. I'm not sure beyond that, maybe adapted screenplay or something like that. But, um, but yeah, I, also I, black Klansman. I, how could I forget this? The company I work for made this film, uh, focus ooh, features. Yeah. Oof. Focus features, uh, uh, distributed this Blumhouse. There you go. Um, but, but yeah, um, so this movie's fantastic, Scott. Uh, yeah, and let's talk about, is. you know, two of the reasons why this movie is so fantastic. Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield, your thoughts on these performances. Scott, I know we made our best, like best actors or like favorite living actors or whatever we, we made uh, last year. We didn't talk about this on the podcast, but I know we like swapped it back and forth. Or maybe that was in 2019. I don't remember when it was. I don't remember if Daniel Kaluuya was on this list or not. But boy, every time this guy walks out in front of a camera, and then does something. I mean, the guy is phenomenal, like absolutely amazing. I think that, I don't know, between him and Paul Racy, I think it's probably a toss up for me of like best supporting performance this year, but he's just like, he's just operating on a different level. And I think he can go back all the way to get out, which is, was his breakout role. I mean, he wasn't Sicario before that. And I mean, I've seen Sicario, but I don't actually remember. I guess I don't remember that movie. Well, if he's I don't in that think movie. it was a big role at all. I mean, yeah, it was, it was a you know minor supporting role, but he was in that, um, probably rewatch that movie sometime this year and, and have a look at that. But ever since get out, I mean, this guy has been operating on a different level than most other actors, if not all other actors and all just so consistent, this, you know, widows, um, queen and slim Scott, which I don't, I don't think that you caught from, from a couple of years back, but I'd highly recommend. And then this, I mean, this guy just disappears into the roles that he plays and just becomes like, it just seems like a, a you know a, a transcends to a different level of acting. It feels like the way that he just electric. I mean, you use the word electrifies for both these performances, which I think is absolutely true. But I think more in like a stereotypical way, right? Like Fred Hampton, played by Daniel Kaluuya, electrifies when he starts talking. When he you know takes the pulpit in you know church scenes or whatever at these rallies, like he, I mean, he sends a chill down your spine the way he's performing. 
um, in, in this role. And what is so remarkable, I think, about a lot of his performances, and I think is this even, you know, is especially true in this one too, is that you get those big, those loud moments, right, where he electrifies the crowd, where he sends a, a chill down your spine. But you also, in this film, you get the quiet moments too. You get the moments where he's having these like really sensitive, emotional moments with other members of the Black Panthers, especially Dominique Fishback's character, who you know is his you know significant other partner, however you want to describe it. I don't actually know what their relationship ended up being uh, before the conclusion of the film, but you know they're having a child together, and it's just so rare. I feel like you know may maybe it's less rare than I think, but it feels super rare to get a performance that just feels like a hundred percent on point in every single moment, loud, you know, and quiet, big and small. And Daniel Kaluuya in pretty much everything that he's done since 2017 is bringing it a hundred percent in every moment and every role he does. And the performance is astounding. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you said it there that you see this performance in like the trailers and stuff and you think, Oh, this is going to be a, you know, a big sort of fiery, like, Again, Denzel, Malcolm X, he's in front of these churches and he's yeah. going off on these, you know, sermons, um, basically. And it it has those moments, but the majority of this performance is not that. It is Fred Hampton going about his daily life, and, yeah. you know, in, in being thrown in jail um, at a couple of points in the movie. And, you know, he has this romantic relationship with, with Dominique Fishback's character, like you said. And I think that it, in a worst movie like the relationship the romance part would be half-baked probably but i think these actors and i will wrap dominique fishback in that too because i think she's very very good as well yeah um, i think that they are able to elevate what on the page may not be you know the most developed romance in the history of cinema um <laughs> yeah to to something that feels i I wanted to say authentic, but then I'm just kind of thinking <laughs> about Malcolm and Marie. Yeah, uh, you'll second guess anytime you ever say authentic in a review ever again. That feels believable, um, yeah. and and I, you know, I, so I think that that's a huge credit to him as well. But yeah, he does all of the moments, all of the different shades of this character, yeah. um, just right. I mean, I think it's career best for it from him. You know, you mentioned some great performances there by him, but I think this is the the peak, and I feel the same about the other guy too. Um, that we're going to talk about in just a second. But yeah, uh, well, just to follow up on the point you're making there about the relation, and I, maybe we'll talk about this later, but I just want to get this in now because it's relevant. But like that relationship too, I think you're you're right. It doesn't feel like the most developed relationship ever in cinema. But then like you stop and you think about like, this is a 21 year old who yeah. went to prison for six months, is going back to prison for five years probably, right before the conclusion of the film based on you know the events that happened, the appeal getting rejected. Like it feels like the development of a relationship that you would expect from someone who, even though he has taken center stage as the deputy chairman of the Black Panther Party party in in Chicago and whatnot, like he has all these out like almost outsized responsibilities for someone of his maturity or age or whatever you want to describe, right? But then he's also like a human being, and and I don't think you could expect a more developed like honestly, I don't think you could expect a more developed relationship when you put him in this context of what he's doing, and also when you put you know, Dominique Fishback's Deborah. I think she plays her name's Deborah. She, her Deborah name is different Thompson, now. Think, yeah. yeah. Like her, I know she's changed her name because she's, right, yeah. she's still alive, but um, yeah, like I just found this, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I thought that for, you know, for a little while, I was like, you know, I just wish they maybe go a little bit deeper with this relationship. But honestly, I feel like that's like the right level level of their relationship. When you put things in the context of, you know, the stage that Fred Hampton is at in his life, but also 
what, you know, what his level of maturity is and, and what his other responsibilities are. Yeah, no, that that's fair. I, I don't disagree with you there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, either way, I mean, the, the performance yeah. is, is incredible. And I think, again, we talked about movie stars in the last movie yeah. with the last movie. Again, I think you got, you got two here with, with Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. And that's never been more clear than after watching this movie. So talking about Lakeith Stanfield, Scott, um, yeah, this is, uh, a, a, he's playing a lot of different things at once, right, with this character, because, you know, he's basically, right, like, uh, again, going back to Black Klansman, uh, I, you think about that scene where, early in the movie, where Ron goes to the the Black Panther, I believe the Black Panther rally it is, and Kwame Ture is speaking, and yeah. um, you see him in the audience, you see, um, you know, Ron, John David Washington in the audience, um, all of a sudden, like as he's listening to the speech, as he's listening to Kwame Ture speak, um, he starts to like, even though he's been sent there on a mission, right? Um, he starts to like be affected by his words. And I think he says like black power or something. He he's all the, uh, eventually he chants along with whatever everyone else is chanting because he actually starts to feel it. Imagine if that one scene was an entire performance, right? Yeah. And that's what you have with Lakeith Stanfield in this movie of like walking this line between, well, you know, the FBI and Jesse Plemons is sort of opening this door to a life for him of comfort and getting to go to these nice restaurants and drink nice scotch and, yeah. you know, be paid by Jesse Plemons every time something happens, just like paid out of pocket there. Um, which is, you know, something that ostensibly he's never had in his life. He starts off the movie as a, um, as a car thief, right? And that's how he sort of ends up in this whole situation. So even though he is kind of being blackmailed, right? I used that word in my uh, in my description of the plot because you know the, the idea is, is that if if he doesn't continue doing this, if he doesn't continue informing for the FBI, then he's going to go to jail for all of these car thieves, car, car thefts he's been for. But with that being said, the blackmail kind of provides him again a life, a comfortable life that he's never had before. So there's that side of it, which he's obviously attracted to that. But then there's the undeniable side that, at, you know, the more time he spends with Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party, um, the more absorbed and captivated he starts to be by this sort of magnetic figure of Hampton and just the entire ideology. And, and as his eyes are opened just to the injustices um, of, you know, the world around them and this stuff that Fred Hampton is is speaking out about, about poor people and black people and um, you know, yeah, one, an interesting thing in the movie, right, is the way that Fred Hampton is able to pull in a lot of different demographics, right? Because he has Puerto Ricans um, sort of chanting at one point. He has like these like rednecks, right? He got, There's one really kind of incredible scene where he goes into a meeting of these guys. I'm not even sure exactly what their affiliation was supposed to be, but he has like, it, it's all of these white sort of rednecks that um has they have a confederate flag even hanging up and he's able to like convince them to to join up with him because they both have this sort of anti-authoritarian thing going on um and and so that's fascinating to watch but anyway with lakeith stanfield um you know there he, he's really torn um throughout that group, movie, that group he, is called the young patriots by the way right um he's having to play a lot of different again a lot of different shades um of the same person uh and i think He's doing it in a very, you know, believable and emotionally racked way, right? Like this, the scenes towards the end where he's like, basically says he wants to go bomb the 
police after they've they've killed this one guy I, I, jimmy his name is escaped jimmy yeah um his name's is yeah jimmy um but at you know where he's and he's telling you know daniel kaluuya and um the other the other guy whose name i don't remember either but um uh, that he you know wants to go bomb like you know the you can see the rage and like the he's clearly this whatever anything that he ever felt about like any sort of distance he ever felt from these people or any any uh time that he ever felt like oh this is just a job i'm just here to you know to perform what the fbi wants me to do that he's lost that now and he's he's completely he's he's so deeply into this life even deeper right then fred hampton himself right because fred hampton is kind of like we need to chill man like that's not the way to go about things um and it's yeah i to, to me again I, I i it's so hard to like choose if you have to pick a favorite of the two performances but i do think if you if you pointed a gun to my head i would go with lakeith stanfield in this movie because just because i think he's doing so many different things at once um all really well yeah the one note about that scene is that it's a little bit complicated because he's not actually wanting to go bomb the police station because he's wearing a wire he's trying to get them to say that they want to go bomb the police station well, but you don't know that's the thing right he sure the, the passion with which he delivers it right and the fact that he is so deeply into it at this yeah, point that's fair yeah no you're you're absolutely right that that is the the plot situation at that point but like the way that he plays that scene again to his yeah. credit as a performer as a performer it's like no, he actually believes this. He actually wants to go do this right now. Yeah, and I, I I, absolutely agree with that statement. I think that I would not begrudge you for choosing Lakeith Stanfield because I agree. I think I think the the I don't want to say the range because I think the range is also there from Daniel Kaluuya, but just the different yeah. sort of hats that that Lakeith Stanfield has to wear over the course of the film, I think is really uh, it's really impressive, honestly. And you know, I was talking about a comparison to The Departed earlier, and honestly, I got big Leonardo DiCaprio in energy from this role, you know, from, you know, similar to The Departed. It really made me uh, feel the similarities. Obviously, the journey and whatnot is is quite different, but I think what Lakeith Stanfield is doing here is something that reminded me a lot of, you know, one of my favorite performances from, you know, the 2000s. And I think that, you know, he really does, from start to finish, deliver on his character. And, and, you know, I want to emphasize that because his character is one that is super complicated, super nuanced and complicated, not because, you know, the film, you know, the film's creators have done the super nuanced job of portraying this character, although that is true, but complicated because Bill O'Neill is a complicated person who at the beginning of the film, he's like jacking cars or whatever. And, you know, he goes from someone who doesn't even know who the Black Panthers are, like that, that, I think that's the heavy implication earlier on in the film, to you know, being the right hand man, basically, of Fred Hampton. Exactly, right? Like being the right hand man, you know, on the surface, but then on simply like also being, you know, a, a double agent of sorts, right? To be being an informant for the FBI to run these raids and ultimately kill Fred Hampton. And I think that that is something that just requires a lot from a, from an actor. Like, yes, I think Daniel Kaluuya is 100% giving it his all. But Lakeith Stanfield is going, I think, to some pretty dark places in this performance. And I think it's really impressive because of that. And I think that the nuance, it's like one of those things like it's really it's always really interesting to judge an actor, you know, acting in a part that is about, you know, pretending to be like pretending to be someone else. Yeah. And I think that it, it's really interesting to see uh, where where that performance goes and how it really does start to blur the line of 
acting a part where you don't know whether the person who's supposed to be acting is acting anymore or really believing it. And I think that there's lots of instances you could point to that you're not really sure what, like what he believes and, or, and certainly, and sometimes it feels like he is a hundred percent on board with what the black Panthers are doing. And then in other times, you know, he's someone who at the end of the day is selfish, although not, I mean, yeah, I think selfish in, in a lot of ways in a really negative way, but also someone who's just like very big into self-preservation. Like at the end of the day, Bill O'Neill cares about Bill O'Neill. And I think that that is, that yeah. is a base tendency that pulls him in a direction he doesn't want to go. Right. But he still goes that direction. And I think that the journey there tears this character apart. Right. And you can really feel that in Lakeith Stanfield's performance. Yeah, I, but I mean, you know, with the selfishness, the self-preservation or whatever, like it, it is the very basic, it yeah. is the most basic, you know, instinct of like, I don't want to go to jail, right? Because like, totally. the fact is, he should not be in this situation in the first place. Yes, okay, he yeah. should not have been stealing cars or whatever, but um, to sort of be shanghai into doing this by the FBI, like, uh, I don't know, when when you say self, selfish self-preservation, I think that comes with more of a negative context or connotation well, this, than this character certainly has a negative connotation to him to some extent. Yeah. Um, to some but extent. I also, I also think he's been, um, you know, there are, there are outside forces that have kind of given him no other choice than, sure. but to pursue this life that he has chosen to be this FBI informant and do these things that, um, you know, he is asked to do by Jesse Plummets. I agree with that, but I don't, I don't think that there's any, I don't know how you could, you could watch the movie and not think that Bill O'Neill is someone who is, you know, extremely unlikable because of the ultimate decision that he made to essentially give the information that he knew when he gave it would kill Fred Hampton. Yeah, no, in in the end, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all complicated though. Is what sure. Uh, yeah, def definitely. It, it's, there, there is, there is no black and white um, from a moral perspective. Um, it's a lot of black movie. and white. <laughs> yeah, uh, from, there's there's no moral black and white in this movie, and yeah. I always appreciate when movies can do that and really yeah. make you sort of engage with the moral complexity. But um, Scott, the supporting cast in this movie also has some names worth mentioning. Dominique yeah. Fishback, who you mentioned, I thought she was one of the best parts of Project Power last year. Um, yeah, that was amazing. Martin Sheen, a very heavily made up Martin Sheen as uh, J Edgar Hoover, and then speaking of the uh, Departed. Yeah, and then Jesse Plemons um, as Roy Mitchell, who I mentioned, um, the sort of the FBI agent who is the main liaison for for Bill O'Neill, um, I think are probably the the main performances you would point to here. Who stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say Martin Sheen has like a main supporting performance, although he's a he's a big name on the cast list, no doubt. Yeah. Um, I mean, I certainly wish that he'd been pushed off the roof of a building in this movie as J. Edgar because he's utterly detestable. Um, don't know the guy, but uh, Jay Edgar, that yeah, is. Jay Edgar Hoover does not get much of a uh, fair deal in movies nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't It doesn't appear so. Although, I mean, look at the policies that, I mean, look, again, I don't know how real history played out, whatnot, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is, like these policies that he had about targeting dissident black oh, people. Oh, no, totally, yeah. Yeah, not not a good look, Jay. Um, he doesn't deserve a fair deal, probably. Yeah, it's, that's, that's maybe the point I was trying to make. But yeah, look, Dominique Fishback, Jesse Plemons, I think both really good performances, honestly. Um, I think that Jesse Plemons is like, it tries to like insert a little bit of nuance into this. Like, I think it tries to give him a coat of like, all right, he's a career guy. He wants to make his up. He's a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on, but at the end of the day, you know, he he's wearing 
kind of maybe like Bill O'Neill, right? Like he's a he's someone who wants to do whatever it has to take to get to the next level of his career um, and to push forward. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what it takes, even if he's a little uncomfortable with it or maybe even more than a little uncomfortable. That's a little bit vague. Uh, he does it anyway. And I think that you can really feel that, right? Like you can feel him. And, I, and at first I wasn't sure about this whole like dual scenes of, you know, you get Roy Mitchell when he's talking to Bill O'Neill, but then you get Roy Mitchell just in the FBI offices, right? But I think by the end of it, I came to realize that I think it's really, it's, it is a really important scene for this. Like these are important scenes for the character because you understand the sort of, I don't know, exploitation that's going on with Bill O'Neill, where he is someone who doesn't have like the authoritativeness or the swagger in the FBI office that he does when he's talking to Bill O'Neill and he's, you know, blackmailing, he's exploiting him and whatnot. And it just feels really sinister when you have that juxtaposition, like what he's doing. And may, obviously I think to say, to say that is detestable and unlikable is probably an understatement, but I think it really provides a context for that character that makes you appreciate the performance a little bit more from Jesse Plemons and for Dominique Fishback. I mean, look, I think she's, not that this movie needs more like heart or soul, but I think there's a lot of heart and soul added to the film with this character who plays a really interesting sort of very level headed measured foil to this sort of like fiery, but also like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of nuance and, and complexity to Fred Hampton, but Dominique Fishback feels like this very, you know, down to earth uh, balance that like providing balance to Fred Hampton's life. Right. And I think that she does a really good job portraying that o overall. I think that's probably, 50-50 for me on who stands out more, Jesse Plemons or Dominic Fishback. Yeah, I think Jesse Plemons is really, some, uh, really, really good in this. And, yeah. I, you know, it was a great third or even fourth performance, right? Um, when you think it's about uh, Dominic, Dominic Fishback as well, um, yeah. factoring her in there. But yeah, it's crazy to me that this, you know, that he uh, playing like this sort of derpy character on Friday Night Lights of Landry, and is now like a big time actor who's doing like prestige movie, multiple prestige movies, like every single year. Um, but I think he's really good in this. Uh, yeah. I think he's also doing a interesting sort of ambiguous type thing with his performance where like, you know, you sometimes wonder if he feels some sympathy for, you know, the black Panther cause and for, you know, the situation that Bill O'Neill has been forced into like, maybe the scenes where he's with J Edgar Hoover, right. And they're talking about like the informants being killed and, yeah. you know, basically the, the complicated thing that comes out about how they've, yeah. they had, they sent one informant to kill another basically. Right. Or to kill a, a, a guy and say he was an informant. Yes, basically they asked an, an informant to commit murder so that now the informant is wanted and wherever he goes, right. If he goes to another black Panther headquarters they can show up and shut down the whole thing because, Hey, you're harboring a fugitive, right? You're harboring yep. this informant. Um, and some of like Jesse Plemons in, in like the scene, those scenes in the office with like Martin Sheen and stuff, like you could sense the, some real conflict within him of like, Oh wow. I don't think what I'm doing here is probably right. Um, but then, right. Like, you know, again, it, it's the same, it, it's an interesting contrast with, Bill O'Neill, right? Because I think there's, it's self-preservation again. Um, and there's all this stuff about there, you know, I think some of those scenes again in the office are really effective and Martin Sheen is talking to him about like, oh, you went to Vietnam and uh, was it Vietnam or Korea? One of them and um, Korea, you were killing people to survive, right? That, 
you, you aren't you aren't killing people for sport or whatever. You were killing people to survive because you wanted to come back and see your family. And so there's that aspect of like he's also trying. He also has a survival instinct, right? Like he also wants to maintain the position that he is in work his way up the ladder even right because yeah. he sees this opportunity with bill o'neill as a chance to get a promotion potentially and Definitely. get more money um and so even if he you know sniffs that something is morally not right here you know in the end and we're getting into spoilers of course we've, we've kind of been into spoilers already but um in the end you know he he becomes just as despicable right and you know he's he's asking and, you know, he's doing the same thing, right? He's asking an informant to commit murder. Um, and, yeah, uh, I, you know, I think it's a powerful commentary on power. And, um, again, just sort of the institutions of power and yeah. the way that, you know, there's always a bigger fish in a way, right? Like Bill O'Neill is being manipulated by Roy Mitchell while Roy Mitchell is sort of being manipulated by the even higher ups at the the FBI and J Edgar Hoover and all that. Um, and yeah. So, yeah, I think Jesse Plemons, a great performance that will probably go uncelebrated in this movie just because of how good those two leads are. Um, but I think he's, he's becoming a, a bit, he's one of those, I saw somebody say this on Twitter the other day and it feels like a good assessment of him that like 40 years from now, he's going to get one of those like legacy Oscars. And we're going to be like, wow, he was, you know, he, he's, he's, he's great in this movie. And then we're going to look back at like his last 40 years of work and realize, Oh wait, he's always been great. Um, we just haven't really been paying attention to him uh, because he doesn't like look like a movie star, really like Jesse Plumas does not. Again, that that's yeah, the thing he, he played like this sort of derpy character in, in Friday night. Like, I mean, great character, amazing character. But like when you look at that show and you look at the actors in that show, you don't point to him and say, Oh yeah, this is the guy who's going to become, and to be fair, he obviously isn't the biggest name to come out of the show with Michael B. Jordan, but, um, but yeah, like, um, Hey, but I he's married to Kirsten Dunst. So it's, yeah, go. it's really impressive the career that he has built for himself. So I, I really admire him a lot as an actor. Yeah. I mean, look, you talk about derpy characters. I mean, none come derpier than his game night character. Or when he played the bully and like Mike as a kid, who could oh, forget God, that? He really? Oh, I forgot he did. That. Yeah, he's the bully at the uh, foster home. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the performances, Scott. Um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts sort of about the way this film is structured. There's a little bit of sort of an Amadeus thing going on where you have like Bill O'Neill. Um, and, and this is a part of the movie that like if you have to find a flaw and it, it feels like they do, they didn't really go all the way with this um, sort of structural premise thing that they could have where you have like it starts off with Bill O'Neill giving his TV interview about sort of the whole thing. Right. And you kind of think it's going to be flashing back maybe a, a little bit more than it ends up doing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But um, do you have any thoughts sort of on, on that aspect of the movie of sort of contrasting um, or, you know, it, it, flashing back and forth between the quote unquote present day when Bill O'Neill is giving this interview and yeah. the past when he's telling, talking about, you know, his, his story. Yeah, I, I don't honestly have too many thoughts about that, <laughs> mainly because although I agree with what you're saying is that it, it does seem to tease at first that it's going to use that particular structure of, you know, in, insert previous movie that's done that before, where it's flashing back and forth from some sort of like documentary type interview 
um, and going back to then recreating those those events in the past. But this movie is just so again captivating that it doesn't bother me and doesn't it doesn't need some sort of like structural, you know, uh, a hook or you know format to really grab your attention and to captivate you and to pace the movie well. Like it just has all of those things independently where it doesn't need this thing. I don't disagree though that it does feel weird to start out with that and then not follow up on i don't i don't disagree there but it's honestly not something that i give even a second thought to just because it again it didn't it didn't matter either way for me ultimately yeah no i i mentioned the amadeus thing just because i think that's an example of a movie that does it really well right and amadeus does a lot of things really well yeah that's that's (laughs) true it's probably not quite fair to compare this to amadeus which is quite possibly the greatest biopic of all time but still i think this movie is Top, top, top tier when it comes to the Bible. Amadeus would have been better if there was a shootout, probably. Probably <laughs> so. Too much piano. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scott, other thoughts on, you know, sort of the story? I think we've gotten into a lot of the different nuances, maybe, of the story. And, yeah, you know, how, how these the ambig- ambiguity of some of these characters. Anything you want to say about, I- anything more to say about Fred Hampton? I think we've talked a lot about <laughs> maybe... Um, sort of the motivations of Bill O'Neill and the key Stanfield. Um, but I wonder if you have any more thoughts on Fred Hampton or, you know, how, how his story ends up wrapping up. Um, yeah. Because again, the resolution of this story and the, the postscript on the screen afterwards was some of the, were some of the most mind blowing moments of the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, to me, in terms of just like what what is interesting to discuss, I don't know. Like the history is the history, right? Like I found it super enlightening. I, that's not meant to dismiss it. It's just like, you know, I don't know how much there is to discuss about what actually happened, which I <laughs> is some of the most incredible parts of the movies, right? Like what you're talking about the postscript. I agree. I was kind of astounded by how that story ultimately played out. You know, the one thing that I will say, if I had to point to one thing that that really makes me scratch my head a little bit about this movie, and it's it's such a weird thing to say after having praised these performances so much is that it feels really weird for Daniel Kaluuya to be playing like a 21 year old and Lakeith Stanfield to be playing a 17 year old. Like that, that is just like, honestly, it's really jarring to then like go and look up these people afterwards and realize how young they were. And so I do want to say that you do not get the feel of how young these people are and how like immature, like again, immature is not the right word, but like, you know, just like lack, like, I don't know. There's like he's 17 and he's 21. Like it's crazy. That's crazy, right? Like it has an even crazier element to the film. I don't. I can't ever imagine anyone else playing either of these characters now. So I. I, I don't give that critique and say, well, they should have just picked someone younger and <laughs> the film would have been better. Because um, that's the kind of. I think that's such a silly thing to say. But it is. It is really jarring to see that you know Fred Hampton was 21 right at the end of the movie and Daniel Kaluuya who he's he's like 30 ish. I don't know. He's around 30, I think. Um, and then like he's Stanfield, who's probably in his late twenties is playing a 17 year old. Um, they're like 10 years older than they should be for these characters. Again, I don't want to harp on that point too much, which is why I also haven't brought it up until now, but it is a little jarring to see that. And that is like the one thing that I would say, I, it didn't distract me in the moment because I didn't know how old these characters, like these real life people were, but it was something that I kind of scratched my head about afterwards when I saw that Fred Hampton was 21 when he died. And then I'd go and look at the story and Bill O'Neill was 17 um at the time it just that 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 was a little wild to me and uh that doesn't quite match up with you know who's giving these performances but such is life yeah you're one of those people who complains about florence Pugh playing a younger 
uh, Amy March and uh, yeah, and Gary Oldman playing too. a forty-year-old. Yeah, that was that's that's that might be the the most egregious one that we've seen so far. But yeah, I no, I, those types of things don't bother me, uh, especially right when it's something like this where you don't even know the history, right? Like I I, I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. That was the age of these guys. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. It didn't know. bother me in the moment. It was afterwards, and I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, if you can get those actors to play these roles, that's not really an opportunity you can afford to pass up. But yeah, anything else uh, to say about this movie, Scott? It's a phenomenal film, and you're doing yourself a disservice to not see it. Yeah, you know, if if you you know live in a place where theaters are open and you feel comfortable going to the theaters, I certainly recommend doing that um, because I think theatrical, uh, you know, experience amplifies it as it does with most movies. Um, favorite scene or moment from Judas and the Black Messiah, Scott? Scott, how, how can you make me decide about my favorite moment in Judas and the Black Messiah? I don't know. I mean, it feels very cheap to to call it this scene, but it, maybe it's just an easy one to point to and I won't feel bad about, about you know, not leaving it out. But the, the rally scene after he gets out of prison, right? He's out yeah, on... that's the same one I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, it, it, you can't be blamed for it. I mean, that scene is i mean you get a lot of it in like the trailer which is probably like the best trailer of the last year um but there it is this scene where he's leading this no rally Bad Land has a great trailer too yeah no Bad Land had, yep yeah very very different trailer but yeah definitely not godzilla, godzilla versus kong i will say that oh man this, this must have really rallied you up because you also messaged me about this today too uh or yesterday I, I, didn't, I didn't watch this trailer when it came out but man it is dumb and it looks exactly like what this movie should not be which is that it takes itself so seriously like it's an absolute joke but anyway go on right you're just so back to Judas on the black Messiah. Yeah. For a few more moments um yeah so you know he he's out of prison he's kind of a tent like he is going to go speak at this rally at a church that's going to basically be reuniting this rainbow coalition which is a real life thing you know the rainbow coalition like everyone's there and things had been kind of falling apart while he was in prison for what you know six months or however long he was there, and he's coming back together, bringing them back together. And the speech he gives, I mean, I don't know, like n- name a better, uh, name a better, you know, s- you know, speech scene in in a movie from the past twelve months. It's just pretty, just absolutely remarkable. And and when you think of like spine tingling, sort of chill inducing scenes of the last year, this is probably the first one that's going to come to mind for a while. Um, it's absolutely electric. And again, not like, yes, I think the focus is on Daniel Kaluuya in that scene. But what you get from Lakeith Stanfield and Roy Mitchell, or I say Roy Mitchell as if he's the name of the actor, Jesse Plemons. Yeah, because he's there. Yeah. And, right, because he's there too. What you get, I mean, there's just so many layers, I think, to what's going on in the scene. And yes, the, the speech that that Daniel Kaluuya is giving as Fred Hampton certainly is sort of the standout or the flashy moment in the scene. But the... You know the the depth of the effect it's having on on Lakeith Stanfield's Bill O'Neill, it really stands out in this scene as well. And so it, it's hard not to point to that scene. Although I wouldn't blame you for pointing to pretty much anything else in the movie too. Yeah, I want to call out the last scene, which I think is really leaves you on a really great note as well. Like, you know, they meet up again, Roy Mitchell and Bill O'Neill, and obviously at this point, spoiler alert. I mean, spoiler alert for history, but. Yeah. Uh, again, I, it feels like a spoiler alert because I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, but Fred Hampton has been killed. Um, and you see that Bill O'Neill is just kind of like a broken man, right? Like he, he walks into this restaurant, I think it is where they're meeting. And he just like, it just seems like all of the life is gone from within him. 
and of course, he thinks he's going to be out, right? Um, he thinks, okay, well, finally, this is it. Fred Hampton is dead. He's like, I'm done with the Panthers. And then, you know, you get the last line of the movie, which is just Roy Mitchell asking him, are you sure about that? And I think that's such a great note to leave you on to realize, hey, even after all that, right, like Bill O'Neill still spent many more years in the Black Panthers as an informant. And, um, you know, this this type of stuff with law enforcement systematically targeting black people is still going on. Right. Like just because Fred Hampton died, just because they got, quote unquote, their man at this one moment in history does not mean that this is, um, you know, that this story is over. And I mean, again, that is another thing that like Black Klansmen did incredibly well of like the note we're going to leave you on is this cross burning outside their apartment. It's not like the happy ending of, you know, the, them saving the day and the racist cop getting arrested and all that because, hey, look, this is still going on. Um, yeah. So, you know, all credit to Shaka King for his direction throughout this film. But yeah, for choosing that to be the the note that this film ends on. Yeah, right, I mean, he, he he was an active informant for the FBI and the Black Panther Party until 1973, at which point... Yeah, five re- more years is what they say in the, at the end, I think, yeah. Yeah, and that only stopped because his involvement in everything came to light, and then he had to be relocated to the in the Witness Protection Program. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give Judas and the Black Messiah? 10.0. 10.0, Scott. We did it. We did it. Uh, to, we t- same... Uh, yeah, the same uh, same score for both movies. I'm not sure that that's ever happened. So something like it's got history right there. Is our first uh, double I, ten since searching? When's our last? I was, about to say, I was about to say. I don't think. I think it's just something like it's got history that Scott gave a movie a ten. Uh, <laughs> I think. Man, you're razzing me so hard for my lack of five star scores on Letterbox. Now you're giving it to yeah. the podcast. Yeah, um, it's all in good fun. But I know. Yeah, this movie is absolutely incredible, um, and. I could couldn't recommend it highly enough, especially, you know, I, I say this, I say the thing about, you know, uh, watching it in a theater, but honestly, however you have access to this movie, if you're on, if you have HBO max, if you're on somebody's Plex server who has it, I don't <laughs> know, just watch this movie however you can, because everyone needs to, to know this story. I think yeah. um, it, it, and it, but it's, it's not a history lesson that you will be bored during in the slightest. Um, I think it's electric. Um, all right, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of some like it, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? At F Shelton two zero one three. And I'm at Scarby dent. Uh, you can also find our podcast on all social media at media plug pods. Um, and don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media plug pods over there. You can support us. Um, and join one of our tiers. Even if you can't support us, though, please rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. Uh, and of course, we hope that you will be back for next week's episode of Some Like It, Scott, on which we'll be, we will be reviewing the current front runner for Best Picture uh, at the Academy Awards, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.